0: Okay, I'm just going to ask you to turn your Bibles. Now, I'm going to preach on Judges tonight because the passage I preached on last Sunday morning, this one, are really, you know, there's lots of links between them. So I felt it would be good to keep up the continuity. So I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 9 and I'm going to read from verse 7. You know, I was just looking there. I thought, I don't see any of the parents of the wee children from the family service out. There. They must have been exhausted after this morning. I must all be that tired, i tell you. Right, okay, so Judges chapter 9 from verse 7. We read that when Jotham was told about this, that's that terrible massacre that had been uh, taking place by uh, Abimelech and, and the people of Shechem. When he was told about this, he climbed up on top of Mount Gerizim and shouted to them, Listen to me, citizens of Shechem, so that God may listen to you. One day the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves. They said to the olive tree, Be our king. But the olive tree answered, Should I give up my oil, by which both gods and men are honored, to hold sway over the trees? Next the tree said to the fig tree, Come and be our king. But the fig tree replied, Should I give up my fruit, so good and sweet, to hold sway over the trees? Then the trees said to the vine, Come and be my king. But the vine answered, Should I give up my wine, which cheers both gods and men to hold sway over the trees? Finally, all the trees said to the thornbush, Come and be our king. The thornbush said to the trees, if you really want to anoint me king over you and take refuge in my shade, sorry, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, then let the fire come out of the thorn bush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. Now, if you have acted honorably and in good faith when you made Abimelech king, and if you have been fair to Jeroboam and his family, and if you have treated him as he deserves, and to think that my father fought for you, risked his life to rescue you from the hand of Midian. But today you have revolted against my father's family, murdered his 70 sons on a single stone, and made Abimelech, the son of his slave girl, king over the citizens of Shechem, because he is your brother. If then you have acted honorably and in good faith toward Jeroboam and his family today, may Abimelech be your joy, And may you be his too. But if you have not, let fire come out from Abimelech and consume you, citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come from you, citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo, and consume Abimelech. Then Jotham fled, escaping to Beer. And he lived there because he was afraid of his brother Abimelech. After Abimelech had governed Israel three years God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem who acted treacherously against Abimelech. God did this in order that the crime against Jeroboam's 70 sons, the shedding of their blood, might be avenged on their brother Abimelech and on the citizens of Shechem who'd helped him murder his brothers. In opposition to him, these citizens of Shechem set men on the hilltops to ambush and rob everyone who passed by. And this was reported to Abimelech. Now Gal, son of Ebed, moved with his brothers into Shechem, and its citizens put their confidence in him. After they'd gone out into the fields and gathered the grains and trodden them, the grapes and trodden them, they held a festival in the temple of their god. While they were eating and drinking, they cursed Abimelech. Then Gal, son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech? And who is Shechem that we should be subject to him? Isn't he Jeroboam's son? And isn't Zebel his deputy? Serve the men of Hama, Shechem's father. Why should we serve Abimelech? If only this people were under my command, then I would get rid of him. I would say to Abimelech, call out your whole army. When Zebel, the governor of the city, heard what Gal son of Ebed said, He was very angry. Under cover, he sent messengers to Abimelech saying, Gal son of Ebed and his brothers have come to Shechem and are stirring up the city against you. Now then, during the night, you and your men should come and lie in wait in the fields. In the morning at sunrise, advance against the city. When Gal and his men come out against you, do whatever your hands find to do. So Abimelech and his troops set out by night and took up concealed positions near Shechem in four companies. Now, Gal, son of Ebed, had gone out and was standing in the entrance to the city gate, just as Abimelech and his soldiers came out from their hiding place. When Gal saw them, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the top of the mountains. Zebul replied, you mistake the shadows of the mountains for men. But Gal, Gal spoke up again. Look, people are coming down from the center of, land, of the land and a company is coming from the direction of the soothsayer's tree. Then Zebul said to him, Where is your big talk now, you who said, Who is Abimelech that we should be subject to him? Aren't these the men you ridiculed? Go out and fight them. So Gal led out the citizens of Shechem and fought Abimelech. Abimelech chased him, and many fell wounded in the fight, all the way to the entrance to the gate. Abimelech stayed in Arumah, and Zebel drove Gal and his brothers out of Shechem. The next day, the people of Shechem went to the fields, and this was reported to Abimelech. So he took his men, divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. When he saw the people coming out of the city, he rose to attack them. Abimelech and his companies with him rushed forward to a position at the entrance to the city gate. Then two companies rushed upon those in the fields and struck them down. All that day Abimelech pressed his attack against the city until he'd captured it and killed its people." Then he destroyed the city and scattered Saul over it. On hearing this, the citizens in the tower of Shechem went into the stronghold of the temple of Elbereth. When Abimelech heard that they had assembled there, he and all his men went up to Mount Zalmon. He took an axe and, and cut off some branches, which he lifted to his shoulders. He ordered the men with him, Quick, do what you've seen me do. So all the men cut branches and followed Abimelech. They piled them against the stronghold and set it on fire over the people inside. So all the people in the tower of Shechem, about a thousand men and women, also died. Next, Abimelech went to Thebes and besieged it and captured it. Inside the city, however, was a strong tower in which all the men and women, all the people of the city fled. They locked themselves in and climbed up onto the tower roof. Abimelech went to the tower and stormed it, but as he approached the entrance to the tower to set it on fire, a woman dropped an upper millstone on his head and cracked his skull. Hurriedly, he called to his armor bearer, excuse me, draw your sword and kill me, so that they can't say a woman killed him. So his servant ran him through and he died. When the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they went home. Thus God repaid the, the witness, the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his seventy brothers. God also made the men of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, son of Zerubbabel, came on them. Just wondering, is that. Kind of mic, is that okay, or is it making a wee bumping? I thought it was maybe bouncing off my growing tummy, but there we are. It wasn't. That's wonderful to know. Okay, let's just come and pray together. Father, we want to thank you as we bring our offering to you for the many ways that you bless us in your life, and our offering is an expression of our gratitude. But Lord, we also come now. And we know that your desire is to bless us through your word, to speak into our hearts and our lives. And we just pray now that each one of us will be receptive, that we'll be here tonight, and our thought will be, what is God going to say to me through his word? And as we hear you speak, may we be ready to hear and then ready to obey. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to begin tonight with a story. It's one that I've already told some of you, but I thought, hey, why should the others miss out? And it's the story of a a little boy in church with his dad one Sunday morning and not finding it particularly easygoing, as children often don't. So trying to pass the time, he looked up and saw a memorial plaque on the wall. Daddy asked, what's that? Oh, his dad replied, That's in memory of all the brave men who died in the services. And the little boy for a little while just looked and scanned the long list of names. And then he asked his final question. Did they die in the morning or the evening service? (laughs) Now, (laughs) Now, the key word there is remembering. And also the possibility of misunderstanding and confusion. Because what I want to do, I want to begin now by remembering, recapping what we looked at last time we were in Judges, because it's only as we do that, I believe, that we'll be able to understand and interpret this passage tonight properly and so avoid possible misunderstanding and confusion. So you remember last time, at least if you're here, I hope you remember a little bit, that Gideon in his latter days, had by a a process of compromise, assumed the role, if not the title, that in his earlier days he'd been offered and rejected. That is, Gideon had assumed the role of king over Israel, over the people of God. The man who at one time had said that the Lord alone was king, Judges 7.23, Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. This man had acted as a king, had exercised the power and authority of a king over the Lord's people. And so what this meant when he died, when his power was no more, was that there was a power vacuum. And as any vacuum must be filled, so Abimelech, Gideon's illegitimate son, sought to fill his father's place He sought to seize his father's non-existent throne to which he had no right to. And he did this by securing the support of his his mother's family, the people of Shechem, and then by using their resources to hire assassins to kill his potential rivals, the 70 sons of Gideon, his own 70 half-brothers. And it's a truly awful story, but it's one that that illustrates for me a vitally important principle, a principle we've already touched on, but that is as true of the spiritual dimension of life as it is of any other dimension of life. That is again, that where there is a power vacuum, that vacuum will be filled. And so as Christians then, we are called to live with Jesus Christ as Lord. We're called to have him as the power of our lives. We're called to live, to walk by the Spirit, to seek day by day, to grow in our closer relationship with Jesus through his word, by obedience to it, by prayer and communication, by meditation, to seek to obey God and do whatever he asks us in any area of our lives. However, if we don't do this, if we don't live with Jesus as Lord, if we don't live with him as the power, as the authority in our lives, then very quickly, we'll find that power vacuum being filled in another way. We'll find our old nature, our old ways, manipulated, of course, by our old master, by Satan himself, beginning to reassert their authority in our lives. And you know, then we feel so often that we can't break free. We feel that we've let God down. We we feel that that Satan has got his back in his tentacles again, and that there's no way out. You know, we failed. It's all a lie, of course, for Satan's power, real and great though it is, is always vastly inferior to the sovereign power of God. And yet how good Satan is, the great deceiver, how good the master liar is at making us here believe his lies. That in brief was what we looked at the last time we were in Judges. What we're going to look at this week uh, in this parable that we have here and in the events that, that flow from it, what we're going to look at really underlines and emphasizes and adds detail to all of this. In particular, adds detail to how we can break free from Satan. It shows us the wrong way to try and do that, do this. How we can struggle and strive and never, ever actually break free. But it also gloriously, wondrously shows us how we can again lay claim to that freedom that is ours in Jesus Christ. Let's begin then by looking first at the parable. This parable here, that is, of of the trees and the thorn bush, shared by Jotham, the only other remaining son of Gideon, who alone had survived that massacre orchestrated by Abimelech. And and basically, as far as this parable is concerned, there are two different sides to this. First, the trees, who I just want to gather into one and, and draw a few major points from that with you. And that is, note that these trees only want to function as God has intended, that they only want the role that God has given. They only want God, then, to be their king. The result, they bear fruit. Each one of them, the olive tree, the fig tree, the vine, each they bear fruit, wonderful, glorious, abundant fruit. But then you have the thornbush, happy to act as king, but whose main characteristic is that it makes false promises, it makes ridiculous promises. Verse 15, it says, If you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, then let fire come out of the thornbush and consume the cedars. Of Lebanon. But you see, the thornbush actually lies close to the ground. It covers the ground like a carpet. So, how could anyone ever then take refuge in its shade? In fact, a thorn bush is notable for the fact that it is absolutely, positively useless. Unlike the other trees, it produces no fruit. And it's timber, the timber itself is worthless. In fact, Gary Inrig says of it in his commentary on Judges, he says that the thorn was a product of God's curse on the earth in Genesis 3, a nuisance which could produce absolutely no shade. Indeed, for all its its promises, the only thing ever produced by a thorn bush, its only fruit, was the destruction of mentioned also in verse 15, because you see, in the heat of some of these bushes when fanned by the wind were often the, the fuel for huge bushfires that would ravage the forests that brought the mighty cedars, as we're told here, tumbling down. That's the parable. Let's move on then to look at the principle, the principle that is that it's designed to illustrate and illuminate, and it's not too hard to see, is it? It's, again, what we've said earlier. But when there is, there was a power vacuum in Israel. When God's people refused to give God his rightful place, then that vacuum was filled, not by good men, not by godly men, because they refused to usurp God's place. But rather, that vacuum was filled, God's place was taken or attempted to be taken by a useless, worthless, dangerous, human thornbush called Abimelech. Now in our spiritual life, this principle holds true. In, in fact, the, the details of this parable hold true in, in almost very much the same way. For Jesus is supposed to be Lord of our life. If tonight we're Christians. But perhaps we know that we're not living with Jesus as Lord. We're not. And so we're not knowing the power of God in our life. No, because Satan, working through the flesh, has tempted us. And again, he's assumed control in our life. And he's done this, very much like here, by promising much, but in the end, delivering nothing. Because you see, the the way the devil works is, he, he says, you know, stop really living the Christian life. Stop denying yourself. Stop limiting yourself. Instead, just go out and live like everybody else does. Go out and do what you want. Go what you want. Get what you want. Seek it for yourself. And do that. And then you'll be happy. Then you'll be fulfilled. Then you'll be satisfied. Then you'll really be living life. But is that what actually happens? No, it's not. Rather, just like the thorn bush, as we live by the flesh, our life produces no good fruit but only that which is ugly and destructive and that finally leads to destruction. Yes, for just like for the, the thorn bush and also for the olive tree, fig tree, the vine, the fruit that we produce shows where our roots really are. Shows where our lives really are rooted in. Shows who really is the true power source, ongoing power source of our lives. Because as Galatians 5:22 says, we looked at it quite a bit recently, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit that comes from Christ's Lordship is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. see these things when they're there when they're in our life these things by their presence show that Jesus Christ is at this moment our Lord that he is in control but the fruit of the, the flesh is something rather different sexual immorality impurity debauchery idolatry and witchcraft hatred discord jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies. See, these things in our life, they show us that another has control, that another has filled that power vacuum within us. Let me just say and add two, I think, relevant little footnotes here before I go on. First, I want to say to everybody who's a Christian, please do not be fooled into thinking that if you are a Christian, you will just naturally drift into living a godly and spiritual life. Don't think that, because that is just not so. Every single day and sometimes many times in a day, you have got to make a commitment again to live with Jesus as Lord. You've got to decide again to deny yourself and you've got to draw again on the resources of the Holy Spirit. And if you don't do that, then you will drift into sin. And maybe even you'll find yourself bit by bit drifting into the most awful sin, because I want to say this, there is no sin that is beyond the Christian. There's no sin that it's impossible for the Christian to do. The Bible is absolutely jam-packed full of tragic stories of carnal, fleshly believers who've disgraced and dishonored the name of God and the name of Jesus Christ. For example, Paul writes in amazement in 1 Corinthians 5, talking to the church at Corinth. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind, that does not even occur among pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you are proud, he says. Spiritually proud. The other thing I want to say, though, is that all this talk of the flesh, when we talk about this, has often led in the past to Christians then having a very negative attitude to their, their physical body, to their physical nature, if you like, in its entirety. I want to say that, though, is again a very unhelpful misunderstanding. Because while the flesh is one of the Bible's ways of talking about our old sinful nature, that nature that even in Christ still remains a part of us, a lesser part, its overruling power is now gone, but it's still a part of us. And that's one way the Bible uses the word flesh. But the flesh isn't always negative in the Bible. For example, this fleshly body, this physical body that's given to us by God is a good gift from God. And provided it's used in godly ways, it is good. Our physical being is good. The problems with the body, though, come in when the body is not used in godly ways, but rather in ungodly ways. But you see, even then, the problem isn't with our bodies per se, but the problem is in the way that because of where our hearts and spirits are, because of the way in which we're using them. James Montgomery Boyce has got an illustration I think' is fairly helpful here. And that is, he suggests that, that we compare a man to an airplane cruising at 35,000 feet. So we'll get that picture. The body of the man is the fuselage, the main part of the plane. The pilot is the soul, and the spirit is the motor. When the motor is running, the body of that plane is an asset because the wings keep the plane up, and the rest of the body assists in flying. But when the motor stops, the fuselage is a distinct disability because it's too heavy then and the plane will crash. So you see, when I submit to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit then fuels my human spirit and keeps it moving ahead in spiritual things, at that point, there is growth and progress. My body, moved by the Holy Spirit, can become an instrument, can be an instrument for God's glory. But when I cut off the fuel supply, when I make that decision, my spiritual motor stops running, and suddenly I'm dominated by my body and its appetites and desires, and not anymore by my fellowship with God. And when that happens, we are heading for a crash landing. Well, we've looked at the parable and we've looked at the principle. Let's finish by looking at the predictable. And that's for the predictable in the fate of a Abimelech and the people of Shechem, and that is that both perish, exactly as Jotham and his prophecy in the form of a parable had foretold. The people of Shechem, or many of them at least, literally, as had been promised, in a fire. Verse 49, so all the men cut branches and followed Abimelech. They piled them against the stronghold and set it on fire over the people inside. So, all the people in the tower of Shechem, about a thousand men and women also died. And Abimelech also, in a sense, died in the fire, or at least he died in the aftermath of his victory over Shechem. Because Abimelech, undoubtedly exultant after this victory, he grew overconfident. And therefore, he put himself into the situation where while trying to put Thebes to fire in exactly the same way, where he was struck by the portion of a millstone, thrown by a woman from the tower there. There must have been some women in that place. Anyway, with Abimelech in the end, preferring to be put to death by the sword of his armor-bearer, his servant, rather than what suffer, suffering what would then be seen as the shame, the embarrassment of being killed by a woman. What I want to concentrate on in particular here, though, is the behavior of the people of Shechem. Just giving greatest emphasis to one particular aspect of this. For you see, Abimelech had come to them. Remember, he'd come to them full of great promises. He had said to them, I'm your flesh and blood through my mother. Once I'm king, I'll really look after you. But it was the fox promise. And as is always the case with the devil's promises, it was quickly followed by disillusionment. You see, the people of Shechem saw that Abimelech wasn't actually the king that he'd promised to be, that he wasn't taking care of them in the way that they thought he would. And they tried to break away from them with, as we've seen, disastrous results. Now, we see something very similar, I think, happening when Christians turn away from living under the lordship of Christ and instead turn to living in the ways of the flesh, to going the way of the world. Because for a while, it might initially seem to be good. There's the pleasure that that comes from instant gratification that sin can bring. The passing moment of pleasure as we indulge for a moment, perhaps to excess, our sinful appetites. I mean, even Abimelech, He reigned for three years before his rule turned to dust. But then when the pleasure goes and it begins to become a slavery and we see it for what it is, then when we realize we've been deluded, what then do we do about it? What do we do to sort this situation out? What do we then do to get our life back on track? What do we do? Well, what the people of Shechem did was that they decided that they would sort Abimelech out in their own strength, and in their own way. And what this led to, as we've seen, was disaster and to their own destruction. Now, how easy it is for us as Christians to do something very, very similar. You know, we're we're not living close to God like once we did. Or we've maybe even backslidden into a life of serious sin, maybe a life of grievous sin. And we're not happy anymore with our life. We know it's wrong. There's no joy. We're empty and dry. And we want to change our life. We want to get back to the way we once were. So, what we do so often is we decide we're going to change ourselves. We're going to put our situation right. We're going to fight our way out of the situation that we've put ourselves into. But so often, what we actually find is like a man caught in quicksand is that the more and more we struggle, the further and deeper we sink in. Isn't that so? You see, I believe what we need to learn to do instead is to do what we're advised in those lovely words of Cory Tim Boom I shared with you a week or so, a week ago. What we need to learn to do is not to wrestle, but to nestle. That is... Not to try to fight our way out first on our own, out of our situation, but rather first to seek to draw closer to Jesus. First to seek to draw closer to Him and to draw on His resources, His strength, to draw on the power of His Spirit, that in the Spirit we might achieve in Him and through Him what we could never do in ourselves. before we can do that, before we can draw again on that relationship with Jesus, we've got to do first something that so often I think we forget to do, that is we have to face up to and we have to deal with the sin in our life that offends our God, that sin that grieves and quenches the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You see, we can't just get up one day and say, you know, I want to return to God. I want to get right with God and just sweep what's been going on in our lives under the carpet and just get on with it from there. No, we can't do that. If we want to get right with God, if we want to draw close again to God, then we've got to confess our sin. We've got to bring it out into the open. We've got to admit sin is sin. And then we've got to decide to make a commitment to repent of that sin that we're going to turn away from it. We're going to turn away from that lifestyle, from that disobedient life, to living again in the ways of God. So what I want to say then tonight, to any who are here, who know that they're not living as they once did, they're not living as they know they should be living. I want to say to any who've been tempted to turn away again, to living in the flesh, that old life, rather than in the Lord, What I want to say to you tonight is that there is a way out. Don't listen to the devil. There is a way out. Things can be again what once they were for you. You can know again the joy and peace and fulfillment that only Jesus Christ and a life with him can bring. But it won't happen by you trying hard. It won't happen by you trying to change your situation. And it certainly won't happen by you just sweeping things under the carpet. Now This will only happen as you get serious with God and as you get your life right with Him again. Are you ready to do that tonight? I pray that you are because I'll tell you this. As you're ready to turn to God and seek Him, God is here and He's ready to receive you. He's ready to bless you. He's ready to forgive you. He's ready to take you on again. God is ready if you come to Him. Let's come now in prayer. Father, we come to you, and Lord, we just thank you that you are a gracious God, and that we're here, and maybe there is sin in our life. Maybe there's things that have been going on in our life for a long time, unknown to anyone else but us, but we know that these things aren't right. Maybe there's resentments that we've harbored, anger that's there, bitterness that's eaten away at us. Maybe there's a thought life that we're indulging rather than turning from, and it's it's not right before you. Lord, you want us to be right with you. Help us to face up to where we are. Help us to deal with our life in a proper, godly way. And then help us, as we come to you, to know again that joy of the Lord, that alone is our strength. We pray this now, that the name of Jesus might be glorified in our lives and in the life of his people here. Amen.